This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. Have you ever seen any of these press conferences where movie directors have, um, they, they host the press conference and then they talk about an upcoming film that might be coming out? Or maybe it's the star of a forthcoming movie that appears on Fallon, and I'm just mentioning that because that's the only late night talk show worth watching, whatever. Um, got an amen, good. And uh, they drop a trailer for the movie or they drop a scene that that actor is in and um, it whets our appetite. Like we, oh, I wanna see this, you know, what's going on. Recently, um, last Monday night, uh, they started dropping trailers for movies or for upcoming releases in the middle of sporting events. So at the halftime of the playoff game, last Monday night on Monday Night Football, they dropped a trailer for the third season of The Mandalorian, um, which that's a Star Wars thing. And so some of you are like, yeah, figures. Okay, I didn't know what you were talking about. I'm not speaking in tongues. It's uh, The Mandalorian, uh, a Star Wars show. And so that's kind of how we think of these opening chapters of Job 1 and 2 as we jump into them this morning. We begin our journey um, a touch more formally than we did last week. Last week, we introduced you to the concepts that are gonna emerge in this book and why, pastorally speaking, we're gonna spend some time here. Um, we're gonna spend time here really up through Lent, the Lenten season, which begins February the 22nd, um, up through Good Friday and Easter. And that's a great direction for us to go. When we think about Jesus being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, it's great that we can be lingering in this book and thinking, thinking about sorrows and grief and hopefully having an eye on Jesus through all this. But these opening two chapters, that we're gonna to consider today are gonna to give us a sneak peek into the action of this book. And really these opening two chapters and the last chapter are the only narrative that we kind of get at the book, the kind of prose, the rest of it's poetry and we're trying to make sense as to what they're saying. But in these opening chapters, <clears throat> we're gonna meet the main characters. We're gonna get a sense of the background of all that Job is facing and uh, really gonna get more than we bargained for. Um, we're gonna be given insight in these opening chapters that really is kind of unheard of in the Bible. So uh, it's gonna be really helpful and I hope we can, I hope it helps us as we linger in this book a bit. My purpose really um, this morning as we introduce this is to give you some counterweights to consider when you're privileged to go through suffering. And many of us in this room go through suffering or we're going through suffering or we will go through suffering. And these are some counterweights. What, are counter, what do counterweights do? They, they kind of balance things out. They, they help create an equilibrium. Um, and when we're in the throes of suffering, we can become very bewildered, very unsettled, and we find firm footing elusive. Like we don't know where to put our foot. We're having trouble persevering. And the book of Job is, this opening chapter is really give us some counterweights to have a foundation. Now, uh, I wanna say that the book of Job is more than just about suffering, right? So um, it's, not just, it's not just a book about suffering, period, but it's these opening two chapters really do pack a wallop that leaves us wanting some sort of wisdom for navigating suffering. And so I hope this passage delivers you truth today. Now, without a relationship with God today, you, you might think that the events of life are all just happenstance, or you may have a way to process what goes on in the world that relates to evil and suffering. And I think Tim Keller has said this so well, so let me kind of point to him. Here's what he says. Christianity teaches the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, and loving God. 
But how can that belief be reconciled with the horrors that occur daily? If there is a God, he either must be all powerful, but not good enough to want to end, to want an end to evil and suffering, or he's all good, but not powerful enough to bring an end to evil and suffering. Either way, the God of the Bible couldn't exist. For many people, this is not only an intellectual conundrum, but also an intensely personal problem because their own personal lives are marred by tragedy, abuse, and injustice. So Keller continues and he presses in. If God himself has suffered, then our suffering isn't senseless. First, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at, to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you must at the same time have a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have a great God who's wise and transcendent and doing what he intends to do and um, you know, not smart enough to pull this off um, that we can't know. You can't have it both ways. And second, though we don't know the reasons why he allows it to continue, he can't be indifferent or uncaring because the Christian God, unlike the gods of all the other religions, takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he's willing to get involved with it himself. On the cross, Jesus suffered with us. So there's an apologetic there to the gospel. Evil and suffering doesn't have to like throw the moorings off Christianity. It's actually in the evil and suffering that we get a sense of what God is like. And especially in a passage like today's that's gonna show that ultimately God is sovereign, he is in control, he is accomplishing this, but he's doing it for wise reasons. He's great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it. So that's where we're headed today. And that's part of God's design in allowing suffering that we might press through it and see Jesus. And another application I think that we reckon with, so maybe you just believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you've trusted him, and you may think, well, that should exempt me from suffering. Like, we had a deal, God, we had a deal. Like, I was gonna believe in you and then my life would be a lot easier, I'd have hope. And um, that's not the case. We're gonna see that here with Job, that God's ways are higher than our ways. So here's how another writer encourages us to apply a text like this. So he's writing in the uh, 19th century. He says, oh, dear friend, when your grief presses you to the very dust, worship there. If that spot has become to be your Gethsemane, then, then present there, then present there your strong crying and tears unto your God. So David's words were, you people pour out your hearts, but don't stop there, finish the quotation. People pour out your hearts before him. Turn it upside down, it's a good thing to empty it. For this grief may ferment into something more sour if we don't turn it upside down. And let every drop run out and let it be before the Lord because he's a refuge for us. So worship him. I think Job gives us this model so amazingly, right? It's, it's almost stunning. And so I want you to consider that application. Can you worship him in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the hurt? Can you worship him? So I hope God would come and calibrate your heart through this. Um, and might that be the case? Might God somehow work for us to be whole spiritually and looking to him? So in this passage, 
I'm holding out four opening considerations to weigh in suffering. And uh, begin, let's read verses one through five together. So Job one, one to five. Here's what we read. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it might be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So four opening considerations to weigh in suffering. Four opening considerations. And the first one's there in those opening verses. That suffering may come regardless of our spiritual status. It may come regardless of our spiritual status. So the man from us is Job. And look at his description because that's gonna be repeated over and over again. Three times in these opening chapters, we're gonna get this description that he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil. And um, in Christian parlance, he's got a full quiver, right? So he's got seven sons and three daughters and he's got money. He's like, he's just like, boom, 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 boom. You know, he's got all kinds of money. He's got lots of sheep. He's got lots of camels. He's got lots of oxen, lots of donkeys for breeding. That's why the female donkeys are important there because he can keep multiplying and increasing the herd. He's probably the man everyone's leaning on to keep the economy running. And at the end of verse three is kind of the big summary. He was the greatest of all the people of the East, the greatest. And when his family feasted together, Job was so conscientious that he would consecrate them. He would offer burnt offerings. And it was reflected in this anxiety that he had perpetually. Maybe one of my children has sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job was not only working to be godly himself, he was working and seeking to lead his family to be godly in a way that pointed them to God. And he did this continually. So it wasn't like no weeks off for Job, no days off for Job. He was always living in this regard. And it's to this man with this incredible spiritual resume that suffering is gonna likely burst the bubble of how we think about this. One writer points to it and describes it like a shadow. He says, why would men and women blessed with such harmony and abundant prosperity do anything other than praise and love God from the bottom of their hearts? That's one of the big questions of this passage. And yet the possibility is there. It, it concerns Job at every time his family is gathered together. There's something dark in human hearts, and Job knows that. Job knows that by nature, we do not honor God as God or give thanks to him. And only sacrifice can cover the sin of the heart. So Job's offering this. And I think this, just right out of the gate here, suffering is no respecter of persons. It comes regardless of your spiritual status. If you have your act together, Suffering may come your way. Um, that's what we can learn from Job right at the outset here. Secondly, another consideration is that God's rule may allow suffering to test our hearts. God's rule 
may allow suffering to test our hearts. So let's read the rest of chapter one now, beginning in verse six. Here's what we read. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Excuse me. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's, brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So these verses running out chapter one give us insight from heaven. We're, we're drawn to like the heavenly courts to see what happened. This insight's astounding that we're let to see, we're let in to see something like this. We don't normally get to see stuff like this. And we aren't, in, we aren't invited to envision a world where God isn't controlling things. We're invited to envision a world where God is absolutely in control. And in this case, God is allowing suffering to come so that Job can be held up as an amazing example of a life well-lived, a life devoted to God's service. So in verses six through 12, Satan comes and presents himself with other angelic beings. And it's God himself who brings up Job as exhibit number one, right? God's the one who initiated all this. He said, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. And it's just like that description we saw in those opening verses, right? Um, that he's blameless and upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. But ever the accuser, Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? After all, you've protected Job and given him blessing after blessing. By the way, I guess this is where we get the hedge of protection. Have you ever heard people pray that? I know a Christian comedian has made fun of this. Like, what's a hedge? I want something bigger than a hedge to protect me. Um, anyway, uh, this is where the hedge is. I guess Satan says, you put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has. Um, so Satan's suggesting if God removed that protection, if God removed that blessing, then 
Job would curse God to his face. You take away his stuff and he's gonna curse you to your face. And so God allows Satan to deal with the stuff, but not with Job himself. And we saw how that shook down in verses 13 through 19. And did you hear the repetition? It just is ominous, right? While he was still speaking, I alone have escaped. And while he was still speaking, I alone have escaped. And while he was still speaking, I alone have escaped. Um, such a heavy thing. One thing after another. When we think it couldn't get any worse, then we hear about this. Well, it couldn't get any worse, but then this. It couldn't get any worse, and then this, and then it couldn't get any worse. And by the way, all your children are dead. So, uh, again, to feel the moment of this, one writer said, an alternation of two human terrorist attacks and two natural disasters have deprived Job of everything. If we could just dwell a few moments on this scene, it's hard not to weep with Job. Throughout the rest of this book, we must never forget the trauma of this scene. We're used in our cultures to post-traumatic stress disorders and the training of trauma counselors to assist in times of natural disaster, terrorism, and war. But rarely, if ever in human history, can there have been a, success, a succession of such extreme disasters as this. Bankrupt and bereft, Job is left alone. The hedge has been broken. His outer skin, so to speak, is violated and all that he has has been taken away. And I love that quote because I think a lot of times we read through all that and we're thinking, yeah, man, it sounds like a rough day. Um, you know, we're reading this in the Bible and thinking, oh man, that, that would have had to have been awful. And I just want us to linger for a second to feel how awful. I mean, we, we know the grief, some of you in this room know the grief of just losing one child. But just imagine if they all died in one moment after everything that you own had been taken away. And this is what Job's experiencing. And maybe most shocking is how the passage ends, right? How chapter one ends. Job's reaction to this test is seen at the end of the chapter. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshiped. Like, are you kidding me? Who is this guy? I mean, he must be blameless and upright, fearing God and never doing evil. This is incredible. And he says, this is his confession. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we're told in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God's rule had allowed these circumstances. And so Job's just attributing that to God in worship. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. And verse 22 assures us this is not sinful or wrong. So, it's, I mean, this is a bewildering text. We, as readers of this, we know it's more complicated than God giving or taking away because we know what happened in heaven just verses before this, that Satan needed God's permission to pull this off. But worship emerging shows that these opening descriptions of Job aren't way off. This is, this is his character. 
And it's a beautiful thing. You remember the accuser predicted that Job would curse God to his face. You take away all that he has, he's gonna curse you to his face. And what does Job do instead? He blesses. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know in the Old Testament, blessing and curses are opposite. This means that exactly the opposite of what Satan predicted would happen, uh, happened. That rather than cursing, Job blessed God to his face. He didn't curse him. He didn't accuse him of wrongdoing. Instead of the embarrassment of a curse from one of God's favorite saints, God's being worshiped even more profoundly, more poignantly. The accuser meant Job's suffering to break his faith and pry him away from God so that Job could terrifyingly belong to him. That's what Satan was after. He wanted to own Job. And that would be far worse. Like if, if Job fell into Satan's hands, that would be far worse than what happened in verses 13 through 19. But under God's hand, Job's suffering drives him to even a deeper profound, uh, deeper experience of worship. This is incredible, right? Uh, and the same is true for people in our day and age. Like when we suffer in a way like Job, God guides our lives in such a way that suffering that would on paper seem to break us or destroy our relationship with God deepens it. I mean, have you ever talked to a believer like that? You know, that you've, you've gone through all this misery and agony and yet you're walking with God still and it's deeper? That in the midst of all that suffering, you found him to be more faithful, more kind? It deepens that relationship. Um, in other words, uh, levels of intimacy that we might not ever know with God can only be found through suffering. And that might be part of what God's ordaining, that he would have all of us regardless. So it's a, this is an amazing thing. And I think in this first chapter, what I'm driving at, God's rule may allow suffering to come to test our hearts. Does he have all of us? And it's, it's, there's a lot of mystery here. Um, I'm sure you all could bring up circumstances and you could say like, are you saying that God allowed this? And I'm saying, I don't, I don't know that I have another option. Like it's no comfort to me that this was somehow outside of God's control. Does that comfort you? That something slipped through the cracks in God's universe? You know, no, it, it gives me the most comfort to know that God is wise and he's good. And I may not understand it, but he's in control. So uh, that's the second the second consequence or the second uh, consideration to weigh in suffering. Third, um, we need to say something about Satan. And um, after what we saw in chapter one and now uh, in chapter two, Satan's desire is our destruction. Satan's desire is our destruction. So look at that in verses one to eight of chapter two. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, hey, have you checked out my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job that there's no, none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So Satan's desire is our destruction. Uh, we jump into chapter two and here we go again. It's kind of the same cycle. It's very similar to the wording. Satan and the angels are before God again and the Lord begins with the questions. Where have you been? Have you seen Job? He passed your weak sauce test. He thought we were real smart with that one. You said he was gonna curse me to my face and he didn't. Uh, but Satan's out for more. Skin for skin. Everybody's always gonna be fine as long as they get their life, but touch his body, touch his bone and flesh and he'll curse you. And we as readers were thinking, haven't we already been down this road? I mean, I think Job's gonna pass this test too. But Satan, ever the, opportun ever the opportunist, he goes from God to strike Job with sores from the foot to the top of his head. And Job would take pottery and scrape himself as he sat in ashes. Why is he in ashes? Well, more than likely because he's still mourning the incredible loss that he incurred in chapter one. I mean, it's unlikely that if you lost everything you had and all your children, that you'd be like, you know, bouncing around like nothing's changed. He's sitting in ashes, he's mourning. And I think the, I just wanna draw your attention to this, that Satan is bent on your destruction. He's not working for your good ever. Um, one writer describes the scene of, of 2.8 uh, with Job scraping, scraping his sores and sitting in ashes as a picture of hell. The Job is in the place of uncleanliness suffering what looks like God's anger. He's close to death, he's cut off from others. He's cut off from life, he's cut off from shalom. And he's in unresolved and unresolvable grief. I mean, this is what hell is. It's like the appearance of being separated from God. It's, hell is real. I'm not saying that, that's, that hell is just a figment of our imagination, but this is what it looks like in verse eight. Separated, grief. So, it's crazy. And this result is precisely where Satan would love for you to be. In the Gospels, um, we have a similar question that emerges with Jesus and the disciples. Do you remember that with Peter? Um, he says to Peter, Jesus says to Peter that Satan has desired to sift you like wheat from the chaff. Uh, but I've prayed for you. <laughs> You're not gonna fail. Uh, Jesus assures us that Satan is still launching those attacks and, and yet Jesus has got our back. He's prayed for you. Later in 1 Peter 1 verses six and seven, Peter's gonna look back on that 
and say that trials are necessary so that the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So these trials are gonna come our way. Satan may desire to sift us, but Peter's saying, looking back on my life, those trials are helpful so that praise can go to God as we test, as we're tested and it's proven to be genuine. And then later, at the end of 1 Peter, do you remember this, where he's writing to these people scattered all over the empire and he says that Satan is our adversary. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is who Satan is. So don't, um, don't pile up with him. Don't think, well, I can give in to this temptation. I can give in to Satan's demands and it's not gonna affect me. It's gonna affect you. His desire is your destruction. He's trying to drag you away. And lest we give Satan too much credit here, Jesus is greater. <laughs> so what Luke read as we started our worship service today in Colossians 2, it tells us that in Jesus and the cross, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Jesus has defeated Satan. Through his death, Jesus will, according to Hebrews 2, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's drawn us out of Satan's tyranny on our lives. Uh, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this is why Jesus has come. This is why we have great confidence. We see Satan acting this way, um, and we're looking at that going, man, his days are numbered. <laughs> like this is a fool's errand he's on uh, because Jesus has it. Game, set, and match. Like checkmate. Like Satan may be thinking he's pulling something off, but he's no match for Jesus. The cross changes things. Like Luther said in the hymn, uh, like if you just wanna think about, okay, a mighty fortress is our God. It, it points to this. Like one little word shall fell him. One gospel word. One aspect of the good news completely destroys Satan and his work. The cross changes things. So in suffering, let's be encouraged that Jesus has blazed the path into suffering and Satan cannot have the decisive word. His, his desire for you is your destruction, but in Christ you overcome. You have a savior who's been there into the, like into the bowels of suffering, like into the depths of suffering. That's where Jesus has gone so that from the inside out, he can just obliterate this reality. That's what, the that's what makes the resurrection so amazing. I mean, the last enemy defeated, to be defeated was death. And Jesus has even overcome that. So um, there's great good news. Satan's desire is to destroy us, but Jesus is greater. And then fourth and finally, um, we have to do something with kind of this final trial that, that Job faces in these opening chapters. So... Um, let's read verses nine to 13. Then Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So, fourth and finally, we see um, in this passage that people are often gonna be paralyzed around suffering. So this is an application for us in church life. This, this final trial almost adds insult to injury. I mean, just think about this. Job's wife has survived all this. She's lost everything too. She's lost her children, but she survived. Like she could very well be dead as well, but she's survived all this. And she's ready to give up, encouraging Job to curse God and die. And look at how Job responds to her so gently. Um, he doesn't sin with his lips. He doesn't say like, oh, woman, get away from me. Whatever. He says, um, he doesn't even call her foolish. He just says, you speak like foolish women out there somewhere would speak. You speak like a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? I mean, Satan has suggested again that Job would curse God with his lips and Job has refused to say anything sinful. And chapter two ends with the arrival of three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, They're gonna loom large in the coming pages. Uh, They've made an appointment to come and show Job sympathy and comfort him. They see him, they're shocked by what they see. They don't recognize him. They weep, they tear their robes, sprinkle dust on their head. They sat for seven days and seven nights and didn't speak a word to Job, for his suffering was great. Um, I've done a lot of research this week and talked to Luke about it a lot, about like how we, what we make of these three guys. So um, most, a lot of people say, well, this is great. They just sat with him in his sympathy and they're just showing him sympathy. They just sat with him. Um, And like the text says, they didn't speak a word to Job. So, I mean, they're still evidently talking among themselves. Um, In the Bible, anytime someone like sits and doesn't speak for seven days and seven nights, it usually means that you're mourning someone who's dead. So we see this a couple times in the Old Testament. Um, these friends are going to carry the book of Job forward, and we know that their counsel is not going to be wise at the end of the story. Um, so I, I'm just summarizing this as people are paralyzed sometimes when it comes to suffering. Like we don't know what to say, or we say the wrong thing, or um, you've probably been in situations like that, right? Where you've said something foolish. I've said stuff foolish in the midst of people going through suffering. So we're like Job's wife in that regard. Or we've just sat there like Job's friends and um, sometimes that's the right move to make. Um, we've tried our best to identify with the sufferer. I mean, so I think we have some great things in this text. Like um, they sat with him on the ground for seven days. So they're at the same level of Job on the ash heap. You know, they're down with him. Which again, um, regardless of what we think might be the case, 
Maybe being silent and present is helpful. You know, a lot of times for a season. Even when the silence is incredibly awkward at times. I would just encourage you, don't go seven days and nights without speaking to a hurting person. Um, and just speak to them like they're human. Don't treat them like they're dead. I mean, so that's an application. I, 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 I think uh, sometimes we're so paralyzed in the moment, we don't know what to say. I've stepped into those moments and made like foolish jokes or something. Um, just underestimated what's happening. Um, these inform our actions as the church. So that was last week I kind of introduced and said, we're gonna kind of use this rubric or paradigm to think through these sections and uh, Job, you know, we see suffering and how we're trying to think through suffering and how we make sense of that. We're seeing uh, the church. We're seeing how we can respond to one another in the body and we're seeing Jesus. And those things are all true in this passage. So I think the New Testament helps us, you know, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Step into the world of others, not to fix them or not to be paralyzed by what they're going through, but being with them as, fellow, as a fellow worshiper of God. You're, you're awestruck by him, just, you know. So I think sometimes we forget, like, um, most everybody going through suffering knows in the back of their mind, like, God's working all this for good. So sometimes we throw that out there, like, You've probably never heard this, that everyone says to anyone, anytime someone's suffering, that God's working all this for good. They know that. You know, everyone knows that. Like in the Christian world, like most everyone knows that. We've heard that. We've been going through this hard time. Well, you know, doggone it, God works it all for good. Um, so we're just trying to be helpful. And I, sometimes it's just helpful to just be a human, uh, to not be an alien, <laughs> like to not be so weird. Like, what is this earthling thing? Um, no, just be human with them. Man, this stinks. Luke was telling me a story about that the other day. He was talking to someone who'd gone through this suffering and they, uh, they go to another church, so that's fine. And, and this person told um, Luke about all the suffering they were going through and Luke just said, man, that stinks. I'm sorry. And they were like waiting for the other shoe to drop, like knowing that Luke's involved in church life. They were waiting for like the next shoe to drop, like, and you know, golly, God's got you or something, whatever. And Luke just said, man, that stinks, I'm so sorry. And they were like, that's it? Like it's, it's so refreshing to just be around a person who just understands that this is a hard time. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's all that Luke should ever say, and Luke's not saying that either, but sometimes just our gut in the moment. We're trying to fix all that in one visit, and just be patient. <laughs> you know, you're still gonna have a relationship with people. Um, hey, this is awful, I'm with you. And you know, even just to say, maybe, hey, could we pray right now? And then you just pray for them. What a hard situation. You know, so I think people will often be paralyzed, and that includes us. People will often be paralyzed around suffering. People are going through suffering. They're gonna be paralyzed. They don't quite know what to make of this. And I can tell you, they're very nervous around Christian people. <laughs> people going through suffering. There's people who... Um, like don't want to come to church because they don't want to get a lecture from someone going through suffering. Like, oh, you know, you're better than that. You know, this is, God's got this. Let's just not shame people. Let's, let's welcome them. And you know, and the amazing thing is there's just all kinds of hurting people around us. This is the nature of the body. Like God's put us together and just like any family, um, 
you know, every family has all kinds of hurt going on all the time, right? And so uh, why are we expecting something less than the church? Um, we're, we're family and there's hurt going on. And uh, we're, we're together worshipers of God. That's what unites us. The fact that we're in the same church means that we like are locked into the same Christ and holding on to the same things. So let's not turn into aliens when suffering comes. Let's not turn into weirdos. Let's just keep trucking. Hey, man, I know your heart's still bent on Jesus. And I love you. I'm with you. We got this. You know, we're gonna walk through this together, you know. This stinks. We're with them as fellow seekers of God. So, um, in conclusion, I, I feel like with all these sermons, like I'm all over the place <laughs> walking through these opening verses. Four introductory considerations to weigh in suffering. That suffering may come regardless of our spiritual status. So you may have your act completely together spiritually and be facing suffering. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. That God's rule may allow suffering to test our hearts. God's rule may allow suffering to come into your life for all kinds of reasons. In Job's case, this is the man. He's gonna hold true to me. So God's rule may allow suffering to come. Satan's desire is our destruction. He's always bent on that. He's not ever for your good. And we're often gonna be paralyzed around suffering. So as we wrap today, maybe just a simple application. Could we all just look to Jesus? I mean, almost the subtext of the entire book of Job is that Jesus is one who's acquainted with suffering. Like Jesus, we know Job and all that he's experienced. Jesus has experienced all that. He knew the abandonment of close friends. He knew the letdown from circumstances that went wrong. He knew what it was like to lose a loved one, to lose a loved one, to lose someone he cared about. And he did all this without sin. So will you put your confidence in Jesus? Will you trust him? Um, and again, I'm not trying to minimize your suffering or try to be trite with it. Um, I think it's in Jesus that we're gonna have hope and it, sometimes we're gonna have to press through that. Um, hope's not gonna come just like the moment you believe, like, oh, well, I no longer struggle with depression or you know, now my head is all fixed and right, perfect. We talked about that last week, right? We're, we don't believe in a therapeutic gospel, but we believe in a savior who is kind of holistic He's not just got like eternal life in view, he's got life right now in view. And he does give us hope and help in the moment. But it might be a journey for a while and he's not left you alone. So um, will you trust him? Will you look to him? Put your confidence in him. And if you're a hurting believer in this room, um, Jesus is closer than any friend you have. I mean, he, he is well acquainted with grief he's promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. It may seem like at times, like, uh, like just think about what Job's thinking about his relationship with God in this moment. Um, we're gonna give voice to that next week. You know, you think, um, lest we think that Job is just like, oh, this is great. Chapter three, one, may the day perish on which I was born. <laughs> like, oh man, um, so Job's hurting, but God has promised, Jesus has promised, he will never leave you or forsake you. And like the writer of Hebrews says, you can confidently say that he's your helper, 
you can confidently say that he's your helper. So lean into him. He's understanding. God is not wasting suffering on you. He didn't let something slip through the cracks that somehow eluded his wise providential care for your life. He's got it. He, he knows what he's doing. He's wise. He's, he's understanding. He's not wasting this on you. We may not know entirely what he's up to, but we can trust that he's infinitely wise. He knows what he's up to. So would you worship him somehow in the midst of the storm? Maybe worshiping him is just saying, God, I'm in agony here. Maybe that's what worship looks like, but look to him. And might your reality lead you to be someone who knows him, makes him known to others, and helps you glorify and enjoy him forever.